0: You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 36, Believe It or Not. A 1936 edition of Ripley's omnibus Believe It or Not, a classic piece of pre-war Americana. The title page describes it as a modern book of wonders, miracles, freaks, monstrosities and almost impossibilities, Written, illustrated and proved by Robert L. Ripley. This was a 16th birthday present from my Auntie Miriam, my mother's youngest sister. Decades before the Guinness Book of Records or Schott's Miscellany, avid connoisseurs of trivia consulted their copy of Ripley to learn of such wonders as the man with two sets of eyes, the ham seller named Sam Heller, or the chicken in Massachusetts that laid a perfectly square egg. It is, as my brother Andrew once declared, the perfect bog-reading book. To Auntie Miriam, trivia was a serious business. She spent hours discussing with my father and mother matters of such grave importance as the order of cinemas you encountered if walking from Shoreditch High Street to Stamford Hill, or whether it was in Top Hat or Swing Time that Fred Astaire performed Bojangles of Harlem. So the gift of an old hardback of Ripley came as no surprise. It was presented to me with all the solemnity of a King James Bible given as a confirmation gift. The difference being that, unlike the authorized version, I still reread my copy of Ripley. In the early 1970s, Miriam divorced my Uncle Laurie, and a few years later she married Seymour, a New Yorker she met via an ad in the New Statesman. Seymour spoke with the slow Jewish Brooklyn drawl of a natural storyteller, the kind that's now dying out, relating tales of his youth in the 1930s New York you hoped would spin out forever. How I wish I'd recorded that voice. When Miriam and Seymour married in 1977, they planned to live both in London and in an apartment overlooking Central Park West. The only formality needed was for Miriam to get her green card allowing residency in the U.S. She completed the form from the U.S. Embassy, which included ticking the box in question 56. Have you ever been a member of, or in any way affiliated with, the Communist Party, or any other totalitarian party, in the United States or abroad? Miriam, in common with most of her friends in the late 40s and early 50s, Was a member of the Young Communist League. As the truth came out years before Hungary and the Prague Spring that the Soviet Union's brutal autocracy didn't match her own idealism, disillusion set in and she left the party. So she had nothing to hide when she ticked the box. The next question led on from this, asking for any subsequent political activity against which she wrote not applicable. The embassy rejected her application. Surely this was a mistake. After all, Miriam had friends with far more subversive pasts already living across the pond. She appealed and an invitation to the US embassy for an interview duly arrived. The Homeland Security official looked at the file on his desk and methodically went through the answers given on the form. You state you were a member of the Young Communist League, the youth wing of the Communist Party of Great Britain, he said. Could you tell me the years you joined and left the party? I joined in 1949, aged 13, and left in 52, she replied. And you are sure you have participated in no political activity since that time, continued the official. No, none at all, said Miriam. The official reached into the file for a stiff brown envelope, it contained two colour photographs which he placed across the desk facing Miriam. These were taken during an anti-apartheid march in 1972, he explained. The second picture is an enlargement of the first. Can you please identify the woman in the blue coat in the both pictures? Miriam recognised herself in the photos. But either she had forgotten Or didn't consider marching against a racist government breaking UN law to be, in any meaningful way, political activity. Perhaps a friend had simply invited her along for a little light protesting followed by shopping and tea at Lion's Corner House. More to the point, she was shocked that the security services had the resources to record and identify peaceful demonstrators in such a way. A few months after I learned of Miriam's embassy meeting, I took part in an anti-Nazi league march from central London to Victoria Park. I supported the cause, but suspect that the main reason I was there was because The Clash played a free gig at the destination. I looked up at the rooftops as the march crawled along Oxford Street and saw, as Miriam's case confirmed, the roofs of Selfridges and Debenhams packed with long lens photographers. They couldn't all have been gentlemen of the press. The free gig confirmed that I would never be a fan of The Clash, but it's those photographers who have stuck with me down the years. For decades, we have become accustomed to shrugging off the levels of surveillance we now live under, be it the preponderance of CCTV, or that cheery message on our smartphones asking, how was your trip to Morrison's? But believe it or not, High levels of snooping into the intricacies of our lives didn't start with the internet. The current annual budget for MI5 is just over £3 billion. That's £3 billion used solely to watch and retrieve information about people in the UK, and doesn't include any customised Aston Martins or weaponised Rolex watches for use overseas. No one debates this sum in Parliament. Neither does it ever attract comments by MPs outside the House. It simply goes through on the nod. If three billion a year prevents another seven-seven or Manchester Arena bombing, you might say that this is money well spent, and I wouldn't entirely disagree. But Auntie Miriam was no terrorist, and similarly, the anti-apartheid movement, Greenpeace, CND, and other protest groups of a similar stripe never advocated overthrowing the government, neither have they ever compromised our security or provided cover for terrorists. The only possible reason to snoop is that their activities oppose and sometimes embarrass whichever government is in power. Despite any inalienable right to a private life, it never stopped brick-level surveillance of innocent people over 50 years ago, much of it illegal. And I will bet the farm that such breaches of privacy are even more prevalent today. Because she failed to disclose her participation in a legal and peaceful march, the US Homeland Security Department made its decision and rejected her application for residency. After a few years, some expensive legal help and a lot of letter writing, the embassy reversed its decision. But by then, Miriam and Seymour had made their home in the London suburb of Snaresbrook. It was my mother who first told me about Miriam's ordeal soon after it happened. I tried playing devil's advocate, using the line that comes easily to the lips of politicians and their supporters. Surely if you've done nothing wrong, then you've nothing to fear. Quick as a flash, Mum fired back. In that case, you won't mind if we put a closed-circuit camera in your bedroom so we can keep an eye on anything that goes on up there. I'm sure you're doing nothing illegal, but just in case. That was Believe It or Not, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a review if you can. And I'll see you next time.